0: This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode number 67. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing
1: Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your
0: host, Michael Blanc. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the show. Today's topic is all around raising capital, and I have with me capital raising expert, Victor Minash. And I met him in person on the real estate guy's cruise, spent some time with him, and he's just got so much experience in his life, real estate and high tech. And he has raised several hundred million dollars, uh, not only for, for his high tech career, but, uh, but more importantly for his real estate career. He started off just doing houses and rentals like most people do, but now is doing fairly large development projects. And he's just raised a ton of capital. In fact, he's got a book out that we're going to talk about here called Magnetic Capital, how to raise all the money you need for any worthy venture. And we're going to talk some of the, about the five key elements of raising capital on this call here. And we talk about, you know, a lot of people actually repel money that we, you know, go out and try to raise money and actually to do the exact opposite. And we talk about why that is and how to fix it. So really excited about this episode. Let's get right into it. Victor, thanks very much for joining us today. I'm really excited to have you.
1: Great to be here.
0: Awesome. Well, just to get everyone up to speed a little bit, tell us a little about yourself and your business and what you're up to right now.
1: So I'm the managing partner of U.S. Real Estate Partners. Uh, we specialize in developing pretty much across the country. And my background, though, is not in real estate. I started out my career in the high-tech industry. Uh, I spent most of my career as a microprocessor designer. I led hardware development teams, software development teams, and you know have chips that were used in mobile phones, in Cisco Wi-Fi access points, uh, all kinds of different applications all over the embedded microelectronics industry. So that's my background. And about 2008 was a very fortuitous time. I saw what was happening in real estate. I was still flying back and forth to Japan every couple of weeks, building a new cellular network there. And uh, by 2010, I'd had enough of flying around the world and decided to shift into the world of real estate development and investment on a full-time basis. So I took a hard left turn in my career.
0: Well, tell, before we get to the the, the the heart of it, which is raising money, I'd like to understand that shift. So you're going along. Now, what's happening to you here in your, in your job? Were you getting burned out? Did you start hating it? Or why, why did you even start looking for a way out?
1: Well, it was a couple of things. Number one, it was you know traveling every you know, to Japan every couple of weeks it was physically, emotionally draining. And it wasn't the right thing for me. It wasn't the right thing for my family. But more importantly, uh, I was looking at, you know, the what was happening in the world of technology? You know, the days of building wealth in technology were kind of over. Unless you, it's like saying I'm going to win the lottery when I grow up. There were so many companies that had swung for the fences, uh, maybe even hit the home run, and then two or three generations later, they were being bought out because they couldn't make a go of it on their own. And so I, you know, simply started looking around to see what else I could do that would be, uh, you know, have a meaningful impact where the odds of success were not quite so remote.
0: It's interesting. I went through a, a similar uh, journey. I was in a software industry and I had the same thing. My initial plan was to, to ha- start my own software company, but having gone through it before, I was like, man, that's going to be a daggone lot of work and the probability of actually success is fairly remote. And that's kind of when I read Rich Dad Poor Dad and I was like, oh my gosh, I got I to gotta change what I'm doing. And how did you land on real estate of all the things you p- possibly could have done uh, with yourself? How did you land up on, on, end up in real estate?
1: Well my mother actually was an architect and so uh, you know I kind of had that bug from a very early age I loved you know constructing things designing things and yes I was designing microprocessors but it still had a design component to it and so you know I looked at real estate so, and you know here's an industry where people will lend you money to go do what you need to do that seemed very attractive and when I looked at where most of the wealth in the world had been created it was either in oil and gas real estate some in technology, but, but real estate just come, coming up over and over again.
0: Yeah, exactly right. And then what, what strategy did you decide to start with when you did decide to get into real estate?
1: The very first projects I did were here in Ottawa. I live in Ottawa, Canada, the nation's capital. And we have a, an interesting submarket where there's parliamentary staff, embassy staff, military officers that are here on a short-term basis. And so this was long before the days of Airbnb. I started out simply providing executive rentals on a medium-term basis because the 12-month unfurnished lease is, is useless to that person. Mm-hmm. And going to a sweet hotel was well above their housing allowance. So I simply looked at what was the housing allowance the government was paying, and I developed a product that was priced at that price point and was perfect for that market. So that's where I started. It was a good business, not an outstanding business, but a good business and fairly low risk. So that, that was the, my starting point into real estate.
0: Did you do this on the side of, of having your job or did you quit and then focus on this? What was that transition like?
1: Initially, I started doing it on the side. And then, uh, and then I started doing some rent-to-own transactions uh, here locally in the Ottawa market. So, you know, built up a port- small portfolio of about a dozen units. And it was at that point that I switched into doing it full-time. Started doing things in the United States, in Arizona, in Chicago. Various other markets and that's really when I needed to, to spend the time. Now, I kind of made a little bit of a slow transition because I, I, I had a VP of engineering role in a, in a semiconductor company and I resigned and they hired me back two months later, three days a week for essentially the same pay. So it gave me a little <laughs> extra financial runway and uh, kind of stretched things out a little bit. It gave me a bit of the extra time that I needed to do what uh, I needed on the real estate side and I continued to do that for the better part of another year.
0: Yeah, that's outstanding it does certainly make it easier uh now when you first got started in real estate i know you do a lot of development right now the, yes. st- the stuff you did early on uh were these uh, existing and holes that you converted to this k- to kind of use or did you start developing from day one or you know, how did you get started with that with that part of it
1: when we started early on you could buy things for well below construction costs so it didn't make any sense to develop but what we were doing is buying things at a deep discount to the market and and made often doing major renovations So, you know, we would take a building, you know, for example, one day we bought 15 properties in Philadelphia out of a, out of an auction. And most of those buildings, we simply demolished the inside, put a new building on the inside and kept the, kept the structure. So the leap from that to new development was actually not that big a leap, uh, because it was kind of a new, new construction anyway. It simply made it, you know, we were able to buy right, you know, we were buying a 10 cents of the dollar and, and so it was just a wonderful time. It was hard to make mistakes at that time. And certainly we did make mistakes, but they weren't that painful because it was a very resilient market condition.
0: Now, you use the term we. Did you start off with a partner or is that something that you, you're, you transitioned to?
1: One of the things I discovered is that real estate is a team sport. It doesn't matter. It's a business like any other business. And if people are going to invest in your business, uh, they want to see a business. and They don't invest in the self-employed generally. They invest in businesses. And, you know, for me as a Canadian investing in the US, if I'm going to borrow money, they look at a foreigner as someone, you know, like someone with a 400 credit score because they think they have no recourse with you, which actually isn't true, but that's what many of the lenders perceive. So it meant that I almost always had to have a local partner, boots on the ground, who would be co-signing on the loan and the principal guarantor on that loan.
0: All right. That makes a lot of sense. What, what was the hardest part for you back in the day when you were making that transition from full-time job to being a full-time investor?
1: Probably the hardest part you know I built up a fair bit of financial runway, so i was I was comfortable. I was spending my savings and but as long as I had lots of savings left, I didn't worry too much about it and It was only when those savings started to dwindle that it, you know the stress level started to to increase. You know early on, I chose some of the wrong partners. And made some when you 've got the wrong partners, things don't turn out as the way the way you want. I, I tell people a good deal badly managed is no deal, and uh, we had some good deals that were badly managed, things that we should have made hundred hundred and fifty thousand profit on sometimes we only made ten mm. or zero, and so I ended up losing a lot of time. I would you know when I started out, if I look back at the first two years that I was doing this full time, I would say I kind of lost those two years. I really accomplished almost nothing apart from getting a good education. I really accomplished almost nothing during those first two years.
0: Now, is your lesson there not the partner or is it a lesson perhaps to just uh, be more careful with partnering?
1: It's, it's got to be with the right people. You know, if you look at every screw up, there's really one of two reasons. Number one, it's an act of God, something you couldn't have foreseen. Or number two, you have the wrong people. And overwhelmingly, it's the second. Having the wrong people in the wrong chairs, making the wrong decisions, that's when most of the screw-ups occur, bar none.
0: at what point did you start raising money?
1: So my background in raising money started in the tech industry. That's where I really developed that skill. That's where I developed how to do it. And I got into real estate initially spending my own capital. And when I ran out, it was like, okay, what do I do now? And then I had to remember, oh, yeah, Victor, you know how to raise money. But it was a diff, it felt like a different process, or at least I perceived that it was a different process. In the end, it wasn't. It was just different people. And I had to rediscover that skill all over again. But when I rediscovered that it was really the same as I had been doing all along, and I'd raised several hundred million dollars in technology, that all of a sudden it just became very second nature. It, you know, it was very automatic, very formulaic almost. And the process is really, it's really the same. Just different players.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, and philosophically, I think you talk about that even though people are trying to raise money, they tend to repel it. Can you talk more about that?
1: You know, it's funny. I often like to take it back to just the basics of human relationships. Imagine two people, they meet, they go out on a first date, they go see a movie, they get to know each other, they fall in love. Years down the road, they may get married and start a family. Well, if you skip steps in that process, if you skip a, even a couple of steps in that process, you go from a natural progression to creepy in a heartbeat. <laughs> right. And how often in business do people go to creepy? It's amazing. You know, I get approached, someone will connect with me on LinkedIn and they've never talked to me before. Thanks for connecting. Can I sell you something? Wait a minute. When people skip steps in that process, then it gets awkward very, very quickly. And if you just take it back to human relationships and think about pacing the conversation so that it doesn't feel forced, then it actually works remarkably well. It's when people force things that it gets very awkward very quickly.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's actually really a form of building relationships, not so much about raising money. A lot of people, they're so focused on their agenda that they can't, they can't put that behind them and focus on the relationship and so that's that's actually a really important message now since then I mean, you've kind of developed a name for yourself as an expert in raising capital in fact you raised several hundred million of capital and and in fact you wrote a book on it and it's called the magnetic capital how to raise all the money you need for any worth or venture and in that book you talk about the five key elements or principles of raising capital so i'd like to maybe walk through those because they're really excellent uh, for a lot of the listeners who are getting into apartment building investing where money is an issue. And I always say it actually isn't an issue. The money's out there. You just have to connect the money with the deals. So I'd be really looking forward to some of the those five five key elements of raising capital. I think the first one, as we mentioned, is the number first one is relationship. Can you talk about that first element of raising capital a little bit more?
1: Absolutely. It really does start with relationship. And by relationship, I mean, it's got to be genuine. Words like networking and connections, and they're very utilitarian. Nobody wants to be used, especially if, you've, if you're a high net worth individual. You know, you're know you already very sensitive to the fact that people are attracted to you because you have money, and nobody wants to be used, whether you're wealthy or not. Nobody wants to be used. So it really starts with genuine relationship. doesn't mean that you're going to get capital out of every relationship. If you go into that thinking that that's what you're going to get, you're going to fail every time. I get different things from different relationships. In some cases, I get introductions. In other cases, I get advice. In other cases, I get capital. In some cases, I get access to opportunities. In other cases, I get credibility. Maybe someone refers me to somebody else who, because of their high credibility, that credibility extends to me. So you get different things from different relationships and simply approach it from the perspective of developing genuine relationships but do it very intentionally, very deliberately so that you build those relationships and and then things will multiply for you. You know, if I think about the most successful people that I know, some of my mentors, one of my mentors, a very successful attorney in New York City, his personal net worth is $300 million. Now, he didn't make that money as an attorney. He simply happened to be in an environment that spilled so much opportunity he couldn't help but make money. And It was just relationship-based. And he did that on the side. Not as his main, not as his main gig. That's kind of the interesting part of it.
0: Yeah, that's 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 good good advice. Is to really focus on the on the relationship. Uh, a lot of people will say, well, how do I find those people with money, right? And and then how do I go about actually building a relationship with them?
1: Exactly. You and I have a mutual friend, Russell Gray, and he talks about it like. People are often looking for tuna in a freshwater pond. If you're looking in the wrong place, you're not going to find you're not going to find the access to the capital. You've got to be looking in the right environment. But when you do, you may you may feel like a fish out of water in that environment. You may say, "Well, I'm trying to network with someone who's very high net worth, and I there's an imbalance. Clearly, you have to acknowledge it. And how do I develop a relationship with somebody who has? you know, so much more net worth, what do I have to offer? Well, maybe you go to a charity event. Maybe you have an interest that you have in common. And you don't make it about money. You make it about that social cause that you're working on, collaborating on together. You know, it doesn't have to be about doing business. A lot of the time people think I got to talk about doing business, got to talk about doing business. When I meet somebody, I don't even bring up business until at least the five or six meeting. And if they bring it up sooner, that's fine, but I'm not going to push it. As soon as you make anything forced, you're going to push people away.
0: Yeah, it's, it's almost like a rule where, you know, when you first meet someone, don't make it about money or don't don't really make it about anything related to your agenda whatsoever. Just simply leave a good impression with that person, right? So that if you do follow up, they go, oh, I remember that Victor guy. He was a real nice guy, you know? And, and they're just look forward to talking with you. And so you basically just focus on a relationship, not about money. I think exactly. that's, that's a really good counsel. So all right, guys, everybody make note of that. So make it about the relationship, not about money, especially early on. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's good. Now, the second element of raising money is, as you say, is track record. What do you mean by that?
1: People want to know that you have, they want to see your results. Show me that you know how to make money. Show me that you have a track record. You know, that's one of the key elements of building trust. And and the third element, the third principle is trust. But this one is so important that it merits its own category. That if you don't have the track record, it's going to be very difficult for you to raise the money. Now, you might be thinking, well, how am I going to raise the money if I don't have a track record? How am I going to get a track record if I can't raise any money? I'm stuck. It's a catch-22. But the thing to remember, this is not like your grade three math test where if you look on your neighbor's paper, you're cheating. Business is a team sport. And so if you don't have the track record, go work with somebody who does. Go work with maybe work in their business for six months, maybe for a year, maybe volunteer in their business for that period of time. And now you can legitimately Borrow some of their credibility because you've earned it. You've been exposed to the inner workings of of that business. And you can legitimately borrow some of that track record. And then get other people in your team who have track record. It's okay to work with people that are more experienced than you. You still have value to add. And, you know, you're not going to develop all of the skills that you need to run a complete business. Even if you did, there aren't enough hours in the day. So partner with the right people with the complementary set of skills and get them in your business. And now you have that track record because they're looking not just at your personal track record, but at the collective track record of the team.
0: Well, that's exactly right. So that's a really good point. And especially in the beginning, we don't have any track record. You, can't, you shouldn't talk about yourself. You need to talk about yourself in the terms of your team. So when, someone, when you're talking about experience, well, you can talk about the experience of your partner or the experience of your property manager. And not much about yourself. That's kind of the general advice is don't talk about yourself uh, when you don't have a track record. Talk about your team, which of course implies that you have a team around you. And, and it's kind of what you said earlier is you want to partner with people. If you don't have something, then partner until you get that experience yourself.
1: Well, in fact, at the very beginning of this interview, you picked up on something, which I didn't pick up on because it's so natural for me. I, you noticed I use we language. And, right. and, and you said, well, who's this we that we're talking about? Because I'm just talking to you. And <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But I, I, I never think of it as me. I think of it as we because it, it's just natural. I wouldn't even contemplate doing something by myself.
0: Now, the third thing you just mentioned is, is trust, right? It's kind of like the three out of the, the five principle is trust. Why is that important?
1: Trust is foundational, if, and, but it's more than just, am I dealing with an honest person? That's very simplistic. There's a lot of layers to trust, and it's a, psycho, it's a more complex psychological contract, and the, the more you understand the mechanisms, the underlying mechanisms of trust, the better you will better job you will do at developing that trust and protecting it. So trust is, first of all, is there alignment of intention? Are you actually headed in the same direction? If you're headed in different directions, it's going to be very difficult to trust, even if you're dealing with two hundred percent perfectly honest, ethical people. Unless you have that alignment of intention, the trust is going to be very difficult to build. Now, put that aside, the next thing is how can I trust you? Can I trust you to put together a good plan? Can I trust you to execute the plan? Can I trust you to hire the right people? Can I trust you to communicate in an open and transparent way? Can I trust you to come to me when there's a problem? Can I trust you with my money? And on and on and on. If you get a no to any one of those questions, it chips away at the trust very quickly. Can I trust you with small commitments? So it's really the psychological contract. And you'll probably notice that when trust exists, decisions happen very quickly. That's right. When trust is absent, that's when you get people saying, well, I don't know, we need to spend more time doing due diligence. To me, that's a clue right away that you haven't invested sufficiently in building that trust relationship.
0: And it varies by the person I've noticed. Some people, you can build trust very quickly and others, it just takes time. And so you have to sense it when the trust is there or is not there before you, quote, close someone down or ask for the commitment.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you can and you can ask questions that will give you a clue as to where people are from a trust perspective. You can, in sales, and I'm very hesitant to use sales language because this is not a sales process, but if you use, and allow me to use it for a moment, the trial close, you can often get a sense for where people are. So the trial close is assuming A, B, and C were true, is there any reason that would prevent you from moving forward? That's a trial close. Right. That can give you a sense for where people are from a trust perspective.
0: Yeah, exactly. Kind of playing a what if scenario, saying, yeah, that, that's exactly where right. we're just going kind to of see where they are. That's good. Now, you, you got to build trust, of course, but then you also need what you call in number four a compelling opportunity. What is that all about?
1: You know, oftentimes, and I see this a lot with rookie investors, they always think it's all about the deal. And they say, well, I've got a great deal, I've got a great deal. And in my experience, it's it's rarely about the deal. It's first and foremost about all of the other things we've talked about plus, plus the fifth. But at the foundation, you have to have a compelling, a compelling opportunity. Now, what is that? It's kind of like asking, is that image on the magazine cover beautiful? It's a little bit in the eye of the beholder. So, for example, for one individual, for one investor, that definition of beauty might be a medical office building. For someone else, it might be a storage complex. For someone else, it might be a multi-unit residential complex at a certain cap rate, and so on. So you really need to understand what that definition of beauty is. Now, lots of times I hear someone say, oh, I had a great deal, but I couldn't get it funded. Well, there's a clue in that, because if it's truly a great deal, in my experience, the money will appear. The deal will get done. The only question is who's going to do it. Is it going to be me, or is it going to be you, or the next guy? But all good deals get done, and they get done fairly quickly, unless you're looking in the wrong place. You know, again, looking for the money in the wrong place. But if it's a really genuinely good deal, and all the other elements are met, it's going to get done. So oftentimes people say, "Well, you know, I got a property at a 10 percent discount to the market." Well, that might be a good deal for you, but for for most of my investors, probably not. You know, when I look at things, I'm looking. For things that are have incredibly high margins and uh, are really really safe, I don't go out there taking a lot of risk. One of the things that I do, you've everyone's heard of this concept called scarcity mentality, and this is where people are fighting over you know slices of a fixed size pie. The game of musical chairs is is a scarcity game because at some point the music will stop and someone's going to be left out. The opposite of scarcity mentality is abundance mentality. Now, we are in an environment today where for most multi-unit complexes, when they appear on the market, there are bidding wars. I've, you know, I've, I've placed offers, you know, 11 bids, 22 bids, you know, on some of these larger complexes. And so I never want to be the, the, the winning bid when there's 20 other offers. That doesn't make any sense. It's very difficult to create a compelling opportunity in that environment. What I do is I'd rather not play that game. I would rather Go build something where I'm not competing with 20 other people. So rather than trying to go find a deal, I usually create the deal. And when you adopt that mentality, it opens up a whole world of opportunities. So I'll give you a small example. Let's say you're going to take a single-family home. It's a 1,200-square-foot home. You're buying it at a discount to the market. You're going to put in some paint and carpet, and, and, and you're going to put it back on the market at a higher price. Well, the value of that is really determined by the market. The day that you bought it, its potential was capped by the framework that you're operating within, by the envelope of that property. If, on the other hand, I I say, well, I'm not going to determine the deal based on what's there, maybe I'm going to take that piece of property and I'm going to tear it down and I'm going to assemble it with two other properties next door and I'm going to put up six townhouses, nobody looking at that one house would, would see six townhouses, they're just looking at it and seeing, well, I can do some flooring and par- flooring and paint and new kitchen and maybe get a higher price. But when you create the deal by breaking the envelope of what's there and creating something new out of it, that's where you unlock real value
0: not only do you lock on value, but you're also excited about it. I, I know that when I'm excited about a deal, what, for whatever reason, either the return is great or it's just an interesting project that your investors can, can tell. And I, and I think that's, a, a, for me, a part of that compelling opportunity is to be excited about a project. I've had projects that I'm really not excited about. The numbers look pretty good. It didn't excite me. And, and for some reason, it got a lackluster response from the investors because to them and their eye, it wasn't a compelling opportunity. And I think it's because I personally wasn't as excited as I probably should have been about the project, which means I shouldn't have done it. <laughs> and what you're doing is you're doing a lot of development, which is by definition is very exciting, right? So you're, you're getting you get very excited about creating value from, from where there was none before.
1: Certainly get very excited about it. But the other thing that we do, and this is foundational to what we do, when you invest in a project, your money goes in and the The second after the money goes in, the question is, how am I going to get my money out? An investment that is not liquid is called a prison for your money. We generally don't like those. Most investors don't like those. We focus on on projects where we have good liquidity. Now, you might ask yourself, how are we going to build a brand new apartment building, put money into it? How are we going to get liquidity out of that? Well, the, the only way that you can do that realistically is to create sufficient value that from the day that you finish the project, you've got 25-30% more value above your total investment so that you can refinance the project and recoup 100% of your initial investment. Then you can get your money out, you're still holding 25-30% equity in the project, and now you've got your capital back, you can go do it again. That's the hurdle that we establish for every single one of our projects. If I can't do that, I won't do it. I want to be able to return capital to investors in 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, if, it, if the money's going to be held prisoner for five years, I'm not interested.
0: And this brings us to your last point, I think, aligning goals of the project with the investor or the money. And this, I think, one example about that. Can you talk more about why or how it's important to align the goals of the project with the investor?
1: Absolutely. This is the analogy I would use here. Is, it's kind of like when you go shopping for a pair of shoes. You might walk into the shoe store and you say, oh, my goodness, here's the most beautiful pair of shoes. And, oh, it's my lucky day, they're on sale. But if they don't fit, you're not a buyer. It doesn't matter how deeply discounted they are or how lovely they are. If they don't fit, you're not a buyer. And it's exactly the same with investment dollars. You've got to have that perfect fit. How much money are you looking to raise? You know, if you're dealing with a, an ultra-high-net-worth individual and their minimum investment is $5 million and you only need 100000 it doesn't fit. It's not worth their time. It's not worth the paperwork for them to put 100000 to work. That's why they have a minimum. Their scarce resource isn't money, it's time. So you've got to match the size of the investment for the project to the size of the investment for the investor. you got to match the term. Does the investor want their money back in six months or five years? You know, I have a guy who believes that his money, if it's sitting on the sidelines, is earning zero. and If it's put to work, it's making money. So he wants his money in for the long term. No right or wrong. It's just his perspective. And I have another guy who wants to recycle his money every six months. Neither is right or wrong. It's just what fits for them and for their lifestyle. So I'm not going to give my five-year guy a flip, and I'm not going to give my six-month guy a long-term hold. It doesn't make any sense.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think alignment is important. And there's, there's even the other investor who really likes stable cash flow from day one. And then there's a guy who just likes, you know, heavy value add deals because they make a killing, and you know, down down the road. And it's so. In other words, there's not just one type of investor. There's literally different. You could have a universe of investors, and you have different segments or classes in of investors. Exactly. And, and, and and you got to be you got to know what those uh, investor criteria are, and then present them with a with a with the right deal. So you're right. I mean, you print the wrong deal to the investor and and they're not going to be interested in that deal. So, yeah, that's – so alignment is clearly very important, right? So – all right.
1: So – So so alignment is a whole bunch of things. So I've I've mentioned two, but there's like almost a dozen. So what's Mm -hmm. the rate of return? What's the control structure? What's the tax consequence? Uh, What is the security? Is there – is there a security? Is there a mortgage securing it? Um, What is the risk? And, and you have to match on all of those. It's not enough to have just a majority of them. In fact, the more sophisticated the investor, the more clear they're going to be on specifically what their criteria are. And if they have ten criteria, nine out of ten won't do it. You gotta hit on all ten. And it's seductive because nine out of ten feels like it almost works. And things that almost work actually don't. You gotta have perfect, perfect alignment. Now, if you're dealing with unsophisticated investors, oftentimes they're not clear on what their goals are and they're going to be much often much more willing but it doesn't mean you should take their money it just means that they are not clear and so they may make decisions that are not appropriate for themselves and part of your responsibility as an entrepreneur as a syndicator as an investor who's potentially taking investment dollars is to help them get clear on what's going to work for them you know i had an investor who had a small amount of money 20, 25,000. I've forgotten now, and it was a like it was a small amount of money. And I did a poor job. You know, he really wanted to invest. He really wanted to invest. So I said, okay, fine. We'll we'll put you on this. We're buying this lot in Philadelphia for 20 grand. We'll put you in first lien position. You're going to have a mortgage on it. You're going to be 100% secure. The note was for I forget nine or 12 months. Six months into it, he comes back and says, I need my money back. I said, how come? He said, well, my family wants me to buy a property in India. I was like, well, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But he was the most nervous investor uh, for a tiny amount of money. So, you know, I made a mistake. I took too small amount of money from someone, you know, really was not an appropriate fit. I should have never taken that investment from him. So, you know, we went, we replaced his capital. We gave him his money back. There was no issue. But you know what? Try to go out and raise $20,000. It's actually very difficult to do because it's too small for Virtually anyone to invest,
0: and this is difficult to do, for, especially for the newbie investor who will take basically anyone that wants to throw money at them. And we don't really talk think about what will happen down the road if there's a misalignment, both in terms of of time or amount or perceived level of risk. Those investors can be, can become a giant issue for for that person. So really, probing on the alignment is is really important. So exactly, it's, it's a very good point. All right. So just to summarize, and these are these are all the, the five elements for, for raising capital that you have in your book uh, called Magnetic Capital. And it's really, number one is to focus on the relationship, not the money. Number two is track record is important. And if you don't have it yourself, then align yourself and talk talk about it in terms of your team. The third is, is building trust with people, very important. And four, you got to have a compelling opportunity that is number five, aligned with what the investor is, is looking for. So- yeah, those are really really good points. Now, you also talk about some of the mistakes that you see entrepreneurs make and that is in raising too little money. Now, why is that such a big mistake and and then what can what can you do about it?
1: When you look at what happens in pro, in real in the real world, you know, at the beginning of a project, people are going to spend hours in spreadsheets and massaging the numbers and getting the perfect looking pro forma analysis. There's, you know, the perfect Excel spreadsheet. And then real life kicks in. The city delays your, your zoning approval and things take six months longer. Your construction costs go up. Why? Because six months later, lumber is now 15% more expensive. You cascade two or three of these things together and now all of a sudden, you're a little bit short of money. There's nothing wrong with the project. The only thing wrong is you're short of money. And you know you've heard the phrase cash is king. Well, guess what? Cash is king. If you raise too little money, and you're starved for cash. That's when things fall over. If you have a little bit extra money, yes, it'll cost you a little bit more in carrying costs. It may cost you one percent more, two percent more, because you raised maybe you raised an extra five percent equity. Well, if your equity is only twenty percent of the project, the cost of money has only gone up by one percent. That's not going to kill you. What could kill you is if you're if you're short of money. So you're better off raising a bit extra making sure you've got that financial buffer. Don't cut it too close because it will take longer. Things will cost more. And when you're desperate, then it's hard to raise the money. It's easy to raise the money at the beginning of the project. You can set those expectations. But when you are raising money from a position of desperation, then number one, you're not attractive. And number two, uh, people are going to be very reluctant to give you money in that situation.
0: Now, this is really good advice, Victor, and 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 I I've learned from this myself. Uh, you know, we had a, a on one of the house flips discovered there was a a water issue which cost another six thousand dollars. Well, we didn't have the six thousand dollars, and that was a mistake. On uh, one of the multifamily, I actually raised uh, an additional, I think, like you said, about five percent, and it was a good thing because we had so many issues that we couldn't foresee af- uh, afterwards. So I I learned from that from the mistake you just talked about. And if you run out of money, it's it can be really really bad, especially. If you don't have your, enough liquidity yourself or your partners, uh, and you don't want to do a capital call either. So really raising in the worst case scenario about if you raise more money is you can always return it a year later if you don't, if you no longer need it. Exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Now, I, you also say somewhere that uh, your advice is to invest like a billionaire, even if you're not. What is that all about?
1: It's a combination of things. If, you know, for example, w- one of our strategies is something that I call buy on the line, move the line. Now, so what is the line? If you think about most cities in America, there are very hot, expensive, gentrified neighborhoods you know with lots of coffee shops and art galleries, you know people walking their dogs and all of that kind of stuff, and you go two blocks too far and you're in the hood. every city in America has that, so it that the line that I'm talking about is that dividing line between the hot neighborhood and the so so neighborhood. if that boundary is a fixed boundary, maybe a municipal boundary, or a freeway, or a railway line, something that's not easily moved, then it's going to be difficult to develop on that line. But if if the line is arbitrary, oftentimes you can go and just buy on the wrong side of that line and redevelop. So you're buying maybe a 10 cents on the dollar because you're buying at the price of the depressed neighborhood. But when you replace that with new product, there are no comps on the on the bad side. The only comps are a block away on the good side. So now you're going to get maybe not 100 cents on the dollar, but maybe 90, 95 cents on the dollar, and you've created tremendous value. Now, if you only do one or two, nobody cares, nobody notices. Your value is going to be determined more by the, the rough neighborhood than the good neighborhood. But if you put a little bit of scale behind it, maybe you do five, maybe you do 10, the marketplace will notice and say, ah. The line has moved. I get it. And when you do that, the values, you set the value rather than the marketplace setting the value. Because you're, you're creating, you're creating a buzz around it. You're creating a sense of progress. And you don't have to be a billionaire. You don't have to do a thousand units to create that value. You can do it on a smaller scale. It's the thinking that applies and you just need to do the same thing that, that larger developers do, but on a smaller scale.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's very good. What final advice or tips do you have for people who, who desperately want to get started with raising money, but they're still a bit hesitant?
1: One of the biggest objections I get from people is I'm. they say I'm uncomfortable asking for money. So I say, great, then don't ask for money. <laughs> because I don't ask for money. I really don't. What I do is I offer people the opportunity to collaborate on a project. I'm very secure that the project we're doing is very strong it's compelling it's got a lot of value and so in fact it would be disloyal if they if someone i have a real relationship with it would be disloyal for me not to offer them that opportunity i'm not asking them for money i'm simply giving them a chance to come along come along for the ride with me on something that i'm building and that's a completely different perspective and when you adopt that mindset that you're actually helping them rather than being desperate for, for for cash it changes the whole dynamic
0: yeah, it does. It's, it's really part of it, sharing your enthusiasm for what you're doing and ask them to be part of it in some way. And, and if, if they feel like they want to inv- co-invest in it, then so be it. Uh, that's the biggest thing, isn't it? it? goes back to point number one, is just focus on the relationship, not about the money, and just see where the conversation
1: goes. Exactly. And, and when, that perfect fit, you know, when that perfect fit is there and it feels natural, it'll just come together. If there's any part of it that feels forced, don't do it.
0: Don't do it. Yeah. So what are you uh, most excited about right now, Victor?
1: Oh my goodness, we have so many projects underway. We have we're building new new projects in Louisiana. Post Hurricane Katrina, a lot of people think about New Orleans and the devastation that occurred there, but this is an area of the country that is absolutely booming and a lot of it has to do with oil and gas development. Now, you know, when you say oil and gas, people think about oil prices being depressed and they run the other way, but in most cases, a lot of the infrastructure and development that's occurring there is around distribution, not exploration. So, you know, there's some communities, for example, that are building very large compressed natural gas plants, uh, gas liquefaction plants, where they're converting methane, natural gas, into diesel, uh, because diesel is easier to transport. Uh, There are, you know, facilities that manufacture um, ethylene, which is a key ingredient to polyethylene or plastic. And so, when you have these multi-billion dollar mega projects going up, they need everything. They need permanent housing. They need temporary workforce housing. They need medical office buildings. They need shopping centers. They need absolutely everything. And so a lot of the work that we're doing right now is centered around, you know, these types of economic developments where there is influx of population influx of jobs good paying jobs you know our tenants the average household income of tenants in some of the areas where we're investing is ninety thousand a year that's not a typical tenant profile but yet it is in these communities so it's a it's a great place to invest uh, so we're very excited we've got a, a lot of land under contract right now and we're in the middle of site plan development so we're very much in accumulating mode right now it's a it's an exciting time
0: yeah that's awesome so uh, before I let you go, how can people best connect with you, Victor?
1: You can reach me at, uh, my website is victorjm.com. That's victorjm.com. If they want to go to the website, I have a magnetism scorecard. So this is, you know, you can feel free to download. It's a free resource and determine for yourself how magnetic are you in terms of attracting capital. Help, it's a tool that you can use to help assess with each prospect how well you're doing in terms of meeting those five principles that we talked about. Uh, of course, you can order the book Magnetic Capital from the website as well. Uh, again, at victorjm.com. I'm happy to connect with you individually. If you have any questions, uh, feel free to reach out to me by email. I'm at Victor at victorjm.com. It's been a lot of fun chatting with you.
0: Yeah, likewise. And I got to know you a little bit uh, on the Real Estate Guys cruise, and you have so much more experience to share and we just, uh, just scratched the surface. So Really appreciate the time and the experience here uh, on the call today.
1: It's been lots of fun and I look forward to connecting with you in person sometime soon.
0: I spend a lot of time talking, writing about raising money, right? It's the most important aspect of getting started in apartment building investing, especially number one, because most people don't have all the capital they need. And number two, even if they did, they're going to run out of it uh, eventually. So acquiring the art of raising money is absolutely critical. In fact, on my online course, The Ultimate Guide to Buying Apartment Buildings with Private Money, I spend the most amount of time talking about raising money. If you look at my blog articles, my YouTube video, podcast episodes, a lot of it is around raising money. It's so important, right? So I emphasize, as Victor did here on the call, that it's not actually about raising money. So you're not going to go out there with a mindset, oh, I'm going to go raise a bunch of money and, and set up a bunch of meetings to, quote, raise money. It's really about relationships. And this is very difficult for us especially when we go to a networking event where there's a lot of money in a room, you know, where you go to a, some kind of, you know, some kind of conference with doctors or attorneys and there's so much money room and you're so eager to basically raise money, when in fact just focus on the relationship. You know, just focus on leaving a positive impression on the other person so that the other person will take your call when you follow up the week afterwards. Just focus on that. Right? It's really the follow up down the road that's so important. And this is very difficult for, for, for everyone, you know, for a lot of people, for me, especially, especially when I meet a person for the first time, I just want to get right to the point. You know, I don't like a lot of chit chat, let's get right to the point. But this is an, an area, an instance where not getting to the point is the point. Right. So really get out of your head that when you're about ready to, to raise money, that's all about raising money, it's all about relationships. And you have to you you have to approach each person individually based on where your relationship is with that person. So for example, if you have a buddy, and let's say you do Boy Scouts uh, with 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 a friend of yours, and he knows you in a Boy Scout slash camping environment, and all of a sudden you come to him talking about investing in real estate, but he doesn't know you in that context, it's weird for him, right? He doesn't actually know you professionally; he knows you through through camping, right? So you need to bridge that gap. On the other hand, if you if you have coworkers and, and they know that you're you've, you've been investing in single family houses, you know they know you in a in a context of real estate, so it's much more natural to to, to now to come to them. You know, immediately going, hey, why don't I schedule? Why don't we schedule a meeting? Let me talk to you about what I'm doing with my real estate investing. Really excited to share it with you. And they're going to go, oh, that makes sense because it's a natural transition. So, really focusing on the relationship and not somewhat on what your personal agenda is. And then being open to where that relationship will go. Yes, you want to, your goal right now with this particular person is to raise money. But really, why don't you be a little bit more open about where that conversation could go, right? It it may not actually lead to hit that person investing. It may lead to that person perhaps referring you to somebody or maybe providing a mentorship role or introducing you to a broker or whatever the case may be. But it's really what you're doing is you you want to share your enthusiasm with what you're doing and, and really getting their support at a much basic level. You're sharing enthusiasm, getting their support, and then just being open to where the conversation leads. While being intentional at the same time. All right, so hope that helps and really focus on the relationship as you're raising money. And speaking of raising money, if you haven't done already done so, make sure you download my free ebook, which is the secret to raising money to buy your first apartment building. And you can get it on the website, themichaelblank.com. That's T H E, Michael Blanc is B L A N K.com forward slash ebook. And downloading that ebook, you can also get it via text message by texting the word secret book, all one word to 44. Two twenty-two. That's 44222. You can get it that way as well. And then while you're at it, make sure you go to Victor's uh, website as well, which is victorjm.com and fill out his Magnetism scorecard and uh, purchase his book also. So everything about raising money today. Hope you enjoyed this one and I'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, Articles and videos go to themichaelblock.com. There, you can also download the free ebook The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.